Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. And I'm Johanna. I've been watching some old episodes of Seinfeld. I've been kind of keeping it on in the background, which I kind of do sometimes because it's a show about nothing. (laughs) I didn't have a TV when that was on the air. So I was super busy, like partying every night. So I heard about it sort of, it was impossible to miss because it was such a huge, huge thing. To this day, I know about some of the big cultural cultural osmosis things with Seinfeld, mm-hmm. like yada, 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 and <laughs> yeah, the soup Nazi and, you know, stuff like that. But I've probably only seen a very minority of the episodes of that show. And I'm curious, does it still hold up? Because it was so 90s, so 90s. Oh, yeah. It's a good show to have for the background. And I mean, of course, my favorite character is Kramer. Did you know, like, every single episode, whenever he entered in a door, the entrance was different every single time? Oh, really? Fun fact about Seinfeld, yeah. So Michael Richard is, he sort of like crashed and burned due to racist jokes. And I'm wondering if we will ever hear from him again. Jason Alexander pops up every now and then. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is still fairly active. Seinfeld has more money than God. And, you know, he only does what he wants. I occasionally watch his comedians in cars getting coffee. Which is great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It is great. But I don't know if we'll ever see Michael Richards, right? The guy that played Kramer. Johanna, how about you? Any viewing experiences to relate? I finally finished watching The Wire, which was one of my pandemic watching projects. And I know we're not allowed to talk about it because you, blah, 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 blah. You haven't read the book, blah, 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 or whatever. Um, I'm saying la, la, la. I'm plugging my ears. (laughs) <laughs> I know, I, I know. You're waiting. You're waiting to watch it because you have to do it in like order. Or something. Yes. You have to, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So one one of my favorite podcasts is Small Town Murder. Shout out to Small Town Murder, Jimmy Wisman and uh, James Petragallo, two comedians that talk about true crime stories. And Petragallo always gives Wishman shit because he hasn't watched The Wire. And this podcast started in 2016 or something years ago. And like every episode, he gives him crap about not watching The Wire. I feel like we are becoming that podcast. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not giving you shit. I I just finally got around to doing it myself. So no, no shade being thrown, but I haven't seen it either. Oh my God. Okay. Well, I know. All right. (laughs) If, if the pandemic continues and we still can't get out to the movie theater, then it's a cinematic at-home experience is what I would describe. Let's stop talking about crime in the 2020s and let's talk about crime in the 1980s. This time, taking us all the way back to 1983, The Fourth Man, the second film by Paul Verhoeven second or third, he made his debut with Splashes, Spetters, I think it's called in Dutch, which he got a lot of flack for it being anti-press, anti-gay, anti-police, a bunch of other things. So um, he he basically said, you know, he was going to go to the U.S. where he would have more freedom. Before we get into that, what can you tell us about 19... 83, Rosie. That was the year the Mario Brothers were introduced. We had Cabbage Patch Kids. Um, That's when uh, uh, the internet was created. It wasn't Al Gore, okay? 
<laughs> it's a completely different organization. Thank you very All much. All right, wait, I okay. got to stop you there because yeah. <laughs> internet created is subjective. The first connections were made between Stanford and uh, one of the LA, UCLA, I guess, one of the big Los Angeles and Stanford basically made the first internet connection. I think that was 1969. So Mm -hmm. it's been around for a little longer than the 80s. But yeah, computer networking really starts happening in the 80s. Yeah, ARPANET officially changes to use the internet protocol, which kind of created the internet. That's what I read. Got it. This was also the year the Space Shuttle Challenger launched its maiden flight. You'll remember uh, Sally Ride was on that one. So this was the year the first African-American went into space. That was on the uh, NASA STS-7 mission. Fraggle Rock premiered on HBO. The first mobile phones were introduced by Motorola. Margaret Thatcher became the prime minister. Hurricane Alicia hit the Texas coast, killing 21. Also, it was a great year for music. That was a year U2's album War came out. That's what really launched them onto the scene. They're one of my favorite bands, so I have to mention that. A lot of great music came out that year. Lionel Richie's All Night Long, which has been permanently stuck in my head since 1983. I can't have anybody say All Night without me going, All Night. It's funny you say that because I haven't been listening to a word you said. I'm stuck singing the theme to Fraggle Rock in my head. <laughs> Ever since you mentioned Fraggle Rock, I'm like... <laughs> Down to Fraggle Rock. <laughs> dun, dun. I know, you can't help it. It's like as soon as you hear Fraggle Rock, you have to kind of do that. Popular artists during the during that time, of course, Michael Jackson. That was a year thriller came out. Michael Jackson was at his absolute prime. I personally had a Michael Jackson folder that I took to school every day, and that was a picture of him with sunburn. I don't know why I remember that. Some popular films came out. Tootsie, Trading Places, Superman 3, Flashdance, Staying Alive. Octopussy, National Lampoon's Vacation, Terms of Endearment, Yentl. I mean, who hasn't seen Yentl that grew up in the 80s? Uh, (laughs) Eric hasn't seen Yentl, y'all. Okay. I haven't either, but I was only born in the 80s. I didn't really grow up in the 80s. (laughs) Right. I think I watched at my babysitter's house. I got a quote from South Park. Damn your black heart, Barbara Streisand. I have have this anti-Barbara Streisand thing. So I haven't watched yet until I'll get around to it someday. Yeah, this actually was the year that Adam Driver, Mila Kunis, Donald Glover, Chris Hemsworth, Aaron Rodgers, and Amy Winehouse were born. 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 Born, Born, (laughs) y'all. Yeah. Ah. I know. And some popular musicians at the time. I'm just excited because, like, I was in third grade that year. That was, like, a big year for me when I actually realized popular culture as my parents were still being very strict with me. Her culture club, Duran Duran, Elton John. Wow. David Bowie, all on the radio. You know, it was a great year. So the movie rights to the novel on which the film was based originally belonged to a dude named Joop van den Ende. I love these names. (laughs) They're really great. So uh, Joop van den Ende had the rights to the film, but he did not want to work with actor Jérôme Crabbe, who plays the lead. Verhoeven was working with Jupe to try to make this work, but they couldn't come to an understanding. So Verhoeven waited until the rights were going to expire, and he showed up at writer Gerard Rave's house on New Year's Eve 
ready to buy the movie rights so that Verhoeven could do the project the way he wanted to. There were 40 actors who were screen tested for the part of Herman. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I got to pause there. Gerard Reeve is the writer. Yes. Yes. The, is... the character's name is Gerard and the writer's name okay. is Gerard. And Gerard. Yep. The, okay. So just we're jumping ahead <laughs> a little bit. The character is Gerard Reeve is actually a writer in the in the movie. All right. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So the the writer's name also Gerard. One of the other uh, main male characters, Herman. There were 40 actors. Tom Hoffman got the part because he was the only one who was okay with kissing Gerowen during a screen test, going all the way with a French kiss. He felt comfortable doing that and that meant he was Verhoeven's dude. Although in other ways, Tom Hoffman did not rise to the occasion when it came to other stunts, notably the driving. There's some pretty aggressive, not safe driving that happens in the film, and Tom Hoffman was keeping it too safe, so Verhoeven had to show him how it was done and um, actually took the wheel himself and then put Hoffman behind the wheel, and Verhoeven stood in the road so that Hoffman would have to swerve out of the way and really make that hairpin turn wow yeah Verhoeven did his own stunts he's a badass (laughs) no I'm just thinking like nowadays we worry about like there's a huge worry about prop guns on sets and yet he stands in the middle of the road and (laughs) yeah Verhoeven also um went out into the water during the scene when Hoffman is walking out of the waves Hoffman couldn't hear any of the direction over the sound of the waves crashing. So Verhoeven actually is somewhere off camera in the water with Hoffman shouting the directions at him so that he would get it right. Wow. I did want to just add a note about this particular film where Verhoeven was coming from. He has a great quote about the religious... Uh, I don't know. It's not even overtones. Tones. The re- the, re- <laughs> the the Catholic gay horrorness of this film. Oh my god! <laughs> Catholic yeah. gay horrorness. Yeah, that that that's a good. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of the first gay Catholic horror film. Um, but Verhoeven said, "Are there a nice- lot of Catholic gay horror films?" <laughs> Do we have a new genre to explore? <laughs> I watched The Exorcist for the first time over Halloween. I forgot to mention that. So maybe that's on my mind. I, I put The Exorcist and this pretty close together. Uh, oh, there we go. Nice. <laughs> Verhoeven said about the film, it would be nice to believe that there is a God somewhere out there, but it looks to me as if the whole Christian religion is a major symptom of schizophrenia in half the world's population, civilization scrambling to rationalize their chaotic existence. Subsequently, Christianity has a tendency to look like magic or the occult, and I liked that ambiguity because I wanted my audience to take something home with them. Remember that Christianity is a religion grounded in one of the most violent acts of murder, the crucifixion. Otherwise, religion wouldn't have had any kind of impact. And then he goes on to say, With regard to the irony of the violence, much of that probably comes from my childhood experiences during and immediately following the Second World War. In fact, if it hadn't been for the German occupation and then the American occupation, I would never have been a filmmaker. Which I thought was just like a, whoa, (laughs) like, if that's the secret to where all of this insanity comes from. I also wanted to point it out because we talked in our previous episode about how the roots of film noir can be found in post-World War II and World War II anxieties. And it seems like Verhoeven is bringing a lot of that to this film 
which I think informs some of that noir feeling in addition to obviously the cynicism about religion and this balance between the comfort that religion brings, but then also the anxiety it creates around sexuality. Last few notes about the film. It was the Dutch entry for Best Foreign Language Film at the 56th Academy Awards. It did not end up being one of the nominees, but it was their entry. And it was one of the highest grossing Dutch films in the U.S. of all time with a gross of $1.7 million. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I feel there is only one thing that appropriately pairs with this film well. That's a Bloody Mary. Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. Both Blood and Mary will come up a bunch in this, as well as they drink a Bloody Mary in, in the film. Now, I looked around for a recipe. There are a million recipes for Bloody Mary. It's one of the most popular cocktails in history. And it's gotten to the point where, like, the last time I ordered a Bloody Mary, I think it was in an airport, and, like, it came with more food than drink because like the garnish the garnish is getting ridiculous people are putting like asparagus stalks in it and green beans and all sorts of like it's <laughs> practically a salad now but i looked around and i wanted a something that i think of as a classic simple bloody mary and i found this on a site called liquor.com hmm. real simple you take a glass and then you cut a wedge of lime and a wedge of lemon. Take the wedge of lemon and slit it in the middle of the wedge and rub it around the edge of your glass. Then you put celery salt on a plate, turn the glass upside down, and coat that wet spot with celery salt. Then you take two ounces of vodka, four ounces of tomato juice, two teaspoons of horseradish, two dashes of Tabasco sauce, two dashes of Worcestershire sauce, a little bit of black pepper, a little paprika. Put that in a shaker, shake over ice, then strain into your prepared glass. Garnish with the classic four. Parsley sprig, some green olives, the lime wedge that you previously cut, and a celery stalk. And there's your classic. Now, if you're making this for more than one person, Gabby would probably break out in hives at this, but I do not recommend using a shaker uh, because you'd just be there forever. I use a blender. I put all this stuff into a blender. I think it makes it great, and you're pouring it over ice. This is not a subtle cocktail where you need to like get a spoon and stir it. You're not worried about bruising the alcohol there, Eric? Not, I'm not worried about bruising the vodka, you know? As a matter of fact, don't use your top shelf vodka because you're putting in so many things like Worcestershire sauce and Tabasco that the subtle notes are, are lost. This is totally a blender-safe recipe. Now that we have our Bloody Marys ready to go, it's time to dive into the fourth man, which right from the title, it's reminiscent of the third man a classic noir film, but this is the fourth man and it is not subtle on the symbolism. I mean, the opening credits have a spider trapping flies on a crucifix on a crucifix. 
this is the story of Gerard Rev. We're going to, oh, our usual pronunciation disclaimer happens here. <laughs> I might say Verhoeven, correct? I don't know. I might say it Verhoeven like we did in the beginning here. But whatever the case is, we are not experts. I know that we have been downloaded in Belgium, so we have at least a fan in the area. So maybe they can tell us, but I don't want to get a lot of angry emails because we are going to mispronounce every name. All right. So Gerard wakes up, shirt cocks it down the stairs, goes to try to shave and his hand is shaking. So he pours himself a drink and then he hears the violin playing. And first thing he does is he goes and he strangles the young man who is very feminine looking with, you know, floofy hair and whatnot, strangles him. And then we see the scene again, and it turns out that that was just a dream sequence. So in the first 10 minutes of the film, we get the fact that Gerard is a pretty serious alcoholic and that he may be gay, but he is also possibly possibly hates that part of himself or is at least kind of confused and ambivalent and that he has really vivid waking dreams. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. lots of lots of Gerard is established within the first At that point minutes. in time, you're not 100% sure. Like I wasn't, later on we will find that uh, Gerard is a clairvoyant, meaning he can see the future or has visions of what might be the future. We would probably call it a psychic. We find out that he may or may not be gay or bi. We can have that conversation later. At that point in time, I thought maybe this violin player could be his roommate. They definitely talk about who can drive the car and stuff like that, and that he drinks a lot. Yeah, dude needs to go to meetings. When you wake up shaking so bad that you have to have alcohol to settle it down, you need to call AA immediately. I'm just saying. Yeah, alcoholism seems to be a very, very common theme in the classic film noirs. Often it's the private detective is the alcoholic who like used to be on the police force, but because of alcoholism got kicked off and now he's a, he's a private dick. Like Jim Leahy on Trailer Park Boys. <laughs> Let's class it up here. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's my Claremont County coming out. I'm sorry. <laughs> hey, we're talking about the literati of Belgium here. So he is a writer and he is invited to give a talk in another city. I think he's from Antwerp. Did I pronounce that Antwerp right? <laughs> hey, go for it. I, at this point, I, I kind of feel like I want to keep score and I'm, I want to try to mispronounce it. Like now it's a game. <laughs> and, and then he travels to another city, which I forget what it's called. On the way there at the train station, he sees a guy and the guy he sees he's clearly interested in and tries to pick him up but the guy seems to be or we think is probably interested in women he's looking at a girly magazine at the time so he eventually hops this train and there's a woman with a child who clearly he keeps staring at has visions about he also sees a poster on the wall for a hotel the Hotel Bellevue, and then he like has weird nightmare visions about that. And then it blood streaks it, which turns out the woman had put cans of tomato juice above it and they leaked. And then he sees a poster of Samson and Delilah. I don't know if it's like a stage production or something, but he sees a poster for Samson and Delilah. My two co-hosts are more steeped in biblical stuff than me, but I think she was this woman who was bribed to 
discover the power that he had because he was the strongest man in the world. He was a Hercules type, but it supposedly came from his hair and she cut his hair and you know, mm-hmm. lost his strength, all of that. Mm-hmm. I don't know my Bible stuff that much. I went to Catholic school. I made it a point not to pay attention to that crap. I also don't know my Bible, but I do know my John Milton. And I highly recommend that our listeners check out Samson Agonistes, John Milton's long poem. It's a very interesting portrayal of terrorism, actually. Samson is betrayed by, in Milton's version, it's Dalila. He is blinded, left for dead, but then prays to God for strength, and then is set up for some sort of sporting event where he's going to be tortured and killed by, you know, other people, lions, etc., and he manages to summon his incredible strength, even though his hair had been cut and he had supposedly lost his powers. And he collapses the entire stadium, killing thousands of people. So just, like, think think about that for a minute. And that was an ad for a hair salon in the, in the train. Samson yes. and Delilah was an ad for a hair salon. Brought to you by Dove. <laughs> if you were a hair salon, why would you do that? Like that that's like the worst like isn't the whole theme that you don't want your hair getting cut? Let us cut your hair and take your weakness away, Samson and Delilah. <laughs> Can I just take this moment to say that we are the only podcast that goes from the trailer park boys to <laughs> terrorism metaphors in Milton in less than two minutes? You're welcome. <sighs> Where were we? Like and subscribe. <laughs> 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 we were right around the part where um the tomato sauce is dripping down the side of the train car but then also there's like a hotel door with a human eyeball that falls out oh yeah man. this is very lynchian right here he has this nightmare yes. vision it's either Lynchian or um, Cronenbergish. He comes to this doorway, and the, instead of a peephole, it opens up, and there's an eyeball, and it's looking at him. And then the eyeball falls out completely of the socket, and then he's brought back to the train. And yeah, it's just one of many of these weird visions he has. But eventually, he arrives at his destination and he goes to his book talk or his lecture or whatever it is. And there's a woman there who a blonde woman who keeps filming him with, I can't tell if it's an eight millimeter or 16 millimeter camera. It's hard to tell. And she turns out to be Christina Halsteg. Again, pronunciation. She is the one that I guess invited him or is part of the group that invited him. And He ends up going back to her place, which is a hair salon. She has like a salon that she works in. Although it's it's called the Sphinx. There's a lot of Egyptian crap in this too. It's called the Sphinx. It's part of the neon sign. Again, another noir trope. The neon sign is like letters are out. So it says spin. I don't know what that is supposed to be saying. I have the feeling that we're losing something in translation here. Yeah, uh, supposedly it's another word for spider. It, it's um, Dutch for spider. So so it's another spider reference. Yeah, like I said, nothing is subtle in this film. So, <laughs> <laughs> so he keeps having like these visions of, and some of them are like three sides of, not even sides, but whole cow carcasses hanging, dripping blood into like, you know, those milk canisters that, that, that you yeah. would normally milk a cow into. And then the fourth one has like roses in it. 
or something, you know? And I yeah, feel the, like the I'm... woman from the train that had the baby shows up with a bouquet of flowers and puts it in the fourth milk jug. Yeah. Um, so again, fourth man, fourth jug, three dead cows. I think that we are leading up to, or there's at least the suggestion that there is going to be a fourth. I just want to pause for a moment on this blonde haired beauty, this femme fatale character we get. I got such serious vertigo vibes, very much reminded me of kind of this aura that's around Novak in Vertigo. And she also kind of reminded me of Ilsa from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I can't, can't really describe what was going on, but she's got a really interesting face, kind of sly, kind of boyish. And there's a really fascinating sex scene in this film. And this is maybe a good chance to talk about what's going on with Gerard's sexuality, but he's hooking up with this hot blonde chick who is slight, not very buxom, kind of boyish. And there's this really interesting shot where he is holding her breasts in such a way that it looks like she has the slightly defined pectorals of a muscular young man rather than full breasts of a woman. And that doesn't quite do it for Gerard, but then he is able to watch them in a mirror and just look at her back, which is actually pretty muscular and well-defined. She's a fit lady and he's able to get to some other place. What's kind of interesting about this, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts, is he gay and just happens to be attracted to her because she has these boyish features? Is he bi and just like Paul Verhoeven is just playing with us with the camera? Or is it that he's kind of interested in people who live at this intersection, like that his type is actually people who are neither man nor woman, but like a little bit of both. Okay. So you brought up a lot of the things that I was going to mention. The actress's name is Renee Saltendike. And she is also the main character in one of my favorite B science fiction movies from the early nineties, Eve of Destruction, which I highly recommend you check out if you like be science fiction. But yeah, she has this sort of androgynous hairstyle that was very popular in the early 80s. Like it's the David Bowie look. A lot of people had this. If you're familiar with the cover of Duran Duran's Rio, the Patrick Nagel, it's, it looks a lot like that kind of hairstyle. So it's not unfeminine. It's not like a butch, but it's not like flowing locks. It's sort of androgynous. She does have this androgynous look. And as a matter of fact, when she goes to seduce him, when she's standing in the doorway, he mentions that she looks like a boy. She, he, he actually says that. And then part of it is she sort of seduces him and gets him really, really going before they actually start so that it's fairly quick. Uh, it's a fairly, <laughs> fairly quick copulation there. But part of that is because she got him riled up. I did have that question. Is he closeted gay or is he bi? It's never really 100% clear in this thing. Keep in mind that this is 1983, and I don't know what it was like in Europe, but a lot of people didn't want to come out or wanted to deny it or whatever. And so I'm not sure if he's 
actually gay or if he's bi or it may bring up the whole issue is everybody just on a spectrum of uh, you know and there's no such thing as you know the theory that there's no such thing as gay or bi or whatever everybody lies along a continuum somewhere you know i had questions myself because in the beginning i saw that scene and i'm like okay he's gay he's gay and he's exploring his options to see if he would actually enjoy being with a woman because he did come from a roommate situation with an obviously gay man you think that's his roommate yeah roommate or lover yeah i was gonna say like it felt like they were intimate and he was possibly more like a boyfriend yeah but it, it, it seemed like their relationship was kind of toxic though like he had this bitchy gay boyfriend or bitchy gay roommate or something that he may or may not have slept with at one point that was kind of the vibe that I got off of his roommate. And then when he was with this woman and when he did that to her with her breasts like that, I was like, oh, okay. So maybe he needs to masculinize her in order to complete coitus with her, you know? Um, but then later down the road, he seems to really enjoy her form when they're intimate. So that's, that was confusing to me. So maybe he is bi, but struggles with it. <laughs> Here's my theory. This is a story about women's sexuality being evil. And so he's attracted to it, but it's trying to seduce him away from being gay. Mm. Hmm. Right after they have sex, he has this nightmare where she has scissors okay so again she is a hairdresser so she should have scissors right that's that's expected remember samson and delilah she cuts off the source of his male power his penis in the nightmare and he comes to i think that that is the heart of the story here women are dangerous women are evil they're going to seduce you away from the gay ideal yeah, they're going to keep you from being who you really are. <laughs> yeah, that's that's kind of my take on on this, that she's the Black Widow spider and he's in her web when he's there. And he has to try to escape that or else he might become the fourth man. And we'll talk about who the first three men are because he finds out soon afterward. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, I was trying to remember if scissors feature in in all of her acts of violence, but no, it's just that very, very graphic nightmare that he has and the parachute. And the parachute, yeah. So the one husband who she's a widow of that she mentions to Gerard is Johan. And Johan's hobby was jumping out of planes as a parachutist. And we see a nightmare vision where she cuts the parachute, whatever. But we later find out from home movies that she made of her previous husbands, similar to the home movies she was making of Gerard, that she had three husbands, Johan Ge and Henk. And Johan was killed in a parachute accident. Ge was killed by a lion. And Henk was killed in a boating accident. And it also occurred to me that these represent three of the four elements, air, parachute, land, earth, the lion, and the sea, the boating incident, which means oh. the fourth man would be fire. Hmm. Now, there's not a lot of fire in this, but he does smoke and he's constantly like playing with lighter and stuff like that. So, well, and there's tons of red. I mean, like this, this was something kind of visually interesting 
you know, thinking about this as a noir film and what does neo-noir with color bring to the genre, some of it is like what you can do with the color red all over this film between the tomato juice, the Bloody Mary, actual blood. There's a scene with a swirl of red leaves when he's chased by the dog. But there's a lot of red in the film. And so I wonder if that's where you kind of get a little bit of that fire element as well. Yeah, it's just an interesting thing I noticed because we get flashbacks to all their death scenes later on when she goes out of town and we find out that her current lover is Hermit, Mm -hmm. the guy that he tried to pick up in the train station. And he sort of convinces her to bring him back so that he can hook up with him. She has to go out of town. The two of them go on a drive together. On this drive, he sees this mysterious woman again, the one with the bouquet of flowers from the dreams. And he has another dream of her with what looks like a gun. It turns out to be a key. I love that scene, by the way. Yeah. And this is something Verhoeven talks a little bit about. Some of what he's playing with here is this idea that religion is just another way of viewing reality. When you see what you think is a pistol pointed towards you, and then it turns out it's a key, what he's kind of gesturing at is it's really just what your mind wants to see at any given moment, whether you add religious significance or interpretation to these things or not. Yeah. And then that key looks exactly like a key that leads him to open the vault that has these films, the wedding videos of or wedding. I say videos, but at the time it would have been films, the wedding films of her former husbands. And that's what sets all this up. So Gerard and Herman end up going on this drive. He's convinced to take Gerard around. Gerard laid his cards on the table right from the beginning and said, I saw you in the station lets him know he's into him. Herman claims that he is straight and not that into it. Um, But on this drive, they see this woman from the dreams and she's going into a cemetery. He runs after her in the cemetery and then Herman runs after him. There's a big storm. They have to take refuge in a mausoleum. This mausoleum has figured into a lot of visions and that's where we get are pure gay sex scene. Mm-hmm. Herman ends up going down on him, which is interesting because he was the reluctant one, supposedly. And we find out that this is actually the crypt of all three of Christine's former husbands, which is really weird burying all your husbands in the same mausoleum. Yeah. If this movie were to be made today, Herman would need to be played by Skeet Ulrich. If you don't know who he is, He's in Riverdale and a whole lot of other stuff, but... Our audience knows who he is. Okay. So, <laughs> so we already know. Okay. Um, but also, yeah, I that's, I think, the scene where Gerard started to think that maybe Christine had something to do with the deaths of her former husbands. But yeah, that was an interesting scene, too. Herman goes from reluctant to, sure, he's straight, straight to the gay bar. So, (laughs) well, so I'm kind of curious, just as part of the message of the film, there's so much here where she is the spider weaving this web, but then ultimately it's after this sexual encounter between these two men that they're driving home and the death actually happens. This is the part where I confess that 
I watched the entire thing with the Portuguese subtitles and my Portuguese is okay. So I was able to follow along what was going on, but I'm not 100% confident. My understanding is she actually wasn't involved in this murder, right? Like that ultimately it was just an accident that happened and possibly it's kind of sort of Gerard's fault. (laughs) Yeah. The only death that I think she would have had anything to do with was when her first husband died in in the parachuting incident because she had scissors with her. (laughs) No, no, she ran over the guy with the boat. Like she definitely, definitely also killed him with the boat and the lion thing is pretty suspicious. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure if that was her or not. Yeah, yeah. how did she make a lion? I think she shut the car door so he couldn't get back in. Oh. Here's the thing. This movie suggests toward the end, he actually says this, that she's a witch It's not like literally wielded the scissors, but that she is a witch, that she caused them to die. She caused the car crash. A piece of rebar spears through Herman's eye, and that's where we have the lost eye business. And it's interesting because later on, this particular actress would be cast as the house matron or whatever in the remake of Suspiria. Oh, which was so good. One of the greatest witch stories of all cinematic history. Let me pull up her name again, because Renee Sautendijk was one of Verhoeven's regulars in his early films. She's also in Splashes, Spetters, I think it is the name in Dutch. At first, I was trying to figure it out, too. And then it came to me that either it's all in his head, which is what the doctors try to tell him. At the end, he ends up in the hospital after this accident, and the doctors try to tell him that, that, and he's convinced that, no, she somehow did it. He doesn't say the words, but magically, she cursed these men, and she was going to curse him. He even told Herman, you know, she's going to get one of us. If we don't do something, she's going she's gonna to get one of us, you know? <laughs> There's a lot of juxtaposition of magic and superstition in the occult with Catholicism in this. Like he's trying to be the good Catholic. And we find out that the woman from his visions is named Mary. And in fact, ends up being the nurse that sedates him at the end. There we have our our Mary reference. He thinks that Mary is the one that has been sending him these visions. And she's wearing blue throughout the film. I mean, not the nurse scene, but in all of the visions, she's wearing like a blue jacket or something. So definitely calling Mm -hmm. out pretty serious Mary imagery. And when she's got the child on the train, she like uses a little bit of apple peel or something to like make a little fake halo or something like that. So there's (laughs) Mary imagery with her throughout. And it contrasts with Christine, who always wears red, right? Which is Mm -hmm. diabolic, you know? So red and and blue here. Watching this with only the Portuguese subtitles to rely upon, I really got to enjoy how beautifully shot and the cinematic storytelling that Verhoeven is able to put together. It's really an incredible film. And I found myself thinking like, I don't know, maybe Verhoeven actually is one of my favorite directors. Like I hadn't thought about it because they're all the movies are so intense, but I love Elle. I'm really excited about talking about Basic Instinct in a couple weeks, but it was, it was actually really a nice change to watch a film and only rely upon the music and the visuals for the storytelling. And it's how he's a master storyteller, right? I mentioned how like how confusing it was watching Loft last time, but this you could almost watch it with the sound off and still follow the story because he is such a visual storyteller. 
For sure. I couldn't agree more with that because, I mean, the English translation, let's be honest, Google really needs to fix that. I can't wait until we get to Star Trek level translation with Google to where you know exactly what they're saying because it just was a hot mess. So I'm really glad that he was a good visual storyteller so I could tell what was going on. The symbolism is so blatant and obvious, and the foreshadowing is very obvious with all these things, the key, the car wreck, the lost eye and stuff like that, so that when he takes that away toward the end, you don't know how husband number two died by lion exactly. Did she close the door? Did she not? You know, those kinds of things. You're willing to buy into the fact that she was responsible for this stuff, lacking any evidence but his dreams, right? Right. I mean, the flashbacks and all that are in his mind. We only know that they died these ways from what we know about them from the home movies, but the actual deaths occur in his mind, in his dreams, not in reality. Like, he wasn't actually witness to that. Hmm. Can we talk about... The, the, the creepiness factor of when Gerard goes to her house and she gives him a fresh shirt that belonged to one of her ex-husbands and then she has like the his and hers towels. <laughs> his medicine cabinet only had a toothbrush in it. It had nothing else. Here's the thing. What we find out later, that shirt is a great thing because that's how he finds out she had more than one husband. He assumed it was Johan's shirt. Right. But he finds out later that it was like Hank's shirt. Yeah, and he's looked at the picture. He's like, Hank, I'm wearing your shirt, dude. <laughs> we have no hard evidence that she's creepy, but she does stuff like pull out cameras and start filming people. You know, now I guess it was at a public event, but it's still a little weird. You know, there are little things about her that are a little off, mm -hmm. but nothing that completely tells us that she's either a witch or a murderer. Well, I was going to say like the very end where, you know, her boyfriend has just been killed like horrifically and she's just like cool whatever and like walks off with the next guy with a, with a nice dog and is just like totally calm and collected about the whole thing like that to me was a tell yeah she was like okay next <laughs> yeah. well i mean he he asked her about that when when you know isn't isn't a little perverted like having me here while you're having your other boyfriend come over you know and, and she's like no <laughs> no not about that not about the like that she's seen two guys at once one of them gets rebarred through the face and like she's at the hospital to go visit him and then she just like goes in the waiting room to pick up the next guy like but do we know that she died that <laughs> do we know that or is that just him his vision of her at the end we don't know that that actually happens that could be just him imagining it true i love how her new boyfriend or the guy she goes off at the end is like a windsurfer and she's like is that dangerous you know is that a dangerous hobby you know it's like oh okay you know isn't that I, I, dangerous like how convenient <laughs> you're the fifth man yeah <laughs> We have gone on too long. We could go on forever. Paul Verhoeven is such a rich director when it comes to stuff like this, and we could probably talk for another hour, but that time is up. I want to remind everyone to like, follow, subscribe, whatever particular way your podcast platform lets you get podcasts, rate us on that platform. If you don't have one and you just get our podcast straight from our website, then Instead, go to Apple Podcasts and give us five stars. 
It's even better if you give us a review. Even better than that is just tell somebody else about the podcast. Get one other person to listen. We would be very thankful if <laughs> if you were to spread the word. You can find us on all sorts of social media, though we rarely post. Uh, we're probably most active on Facebook, where we have not only our official page, but we also have a, a lively little group there mm-hmm. that discusses uh, episodes. Also, you can write us at GC8podcast, letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. Signing off.